the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, Lori America. Bonjour. Hi, Ken. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live in the West Coast, relieffactor.com studio. Good morning to you. It is first in the nation primary day, New Hampshire primary. And in fact, the town of Dixville Notch went in an avalanche for Nikki Haley last night at midnight. That's the little town of six voters way up north of New Hampshire. And they get together at midnight. And last night they cast all of their votes for Nikki Haley. There are four Republicans in Dixville Notch and two unaffiliated. Um, New Hampshire is actually the majority or the plurality is unaffiliated. So it'll be interesting. We won't get results until 730 tonight that you can bank on. The headlines are predictable. Fox News, New Hampshire primary clash. Can Nikki Haley slow down Donald Trump's push for the GOP presidential nomination? From the Financial Times, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley offer clashing visions of America's place in the world. Uh, from the Hill, Trump miscues have them seeking to turn tables on GOP over age, mental fit- fitness. There isn't anything newsworthy. I have some clips that were said last night by the former president, by Ambassador Haley, which I'll play for you in a second. But there's nothing newsworthy all day long. Uh, I can't even believe they do exit polls in a state as small as New Hampshire. They could be so far wrong. So basically, we don't know nothing. And we won't know nothing until time at 7.30. From the war, terrible news this morning. Uh, at least 21 IDF soldiers killed in Khan Yunus as a building collapsed around them. They were wiring it for demolition when it was hit by an RPG, according to reports in the Times of Israel. So that is, again, Israel is a, a nation of 9 million people. We are a nation of 330 million people. To get a comparable loss of 21, you would have to multiply by at least 30. It would be like losing 600 Marines in the barracks at Beirut. It, it's it's a devastating blow in Israel this morning. The IDF has encircled Khan Yunus. They are pushing deeper and deeper into the Hamas stronghold. Fierce battle. Uh, three IDF officers were killed before the building collapsed overnight. And the reports from the Times of Israel, other English language media in Israel, is that it's very, very intense fighting with scores and scores of Hamas terrorists being killed. Three IDF officers killed. Separate incident from the, the building collapse. Also, a long story in the Times of Israel yesterday that reservists are divided uh, as they get back. Uh, you know, Israel is a citizen's army. I believe the standing IDF is a quarter million, but they've, they've gone up to 600,000. And 250,000 of those men and women are reservists, and they go in, they come out, they go in, they come out. And some just go in and never come home. But some who've come home for a break are upset with the way the war is being run. They believe it's not being fought to win. That is a cancerous kind of belief if it takes root deep in an army. I don't know how to assess this. I'm not an Israeli, and I don't know anyone in the IDF. 
I know a lot of people like Khabib Rediger and Michael Oren who can tell me what's going on when they come on, but I, I don't know how to assess this. But I do know distant memory and from books of the period when Vietnam started to go south is when LBJ wasn't fighting to win. And that's a pretty dangerous situation to be in. You've got to fight to win. We'll see. By the way, there's going to be a walkout this week of federal government employees who are upset with the Biden administration's support of Israel, which isn't that great, so I don't know what they're upset about. But if that happens, it's illegal, and the Biden administration will have the authority, and they will not use it to fire someone. Supreme Court sided with the federal government yesterday and said it controls the border by a 5-4 vote. They vacated an order telling the Border Patrol to leave the state of Texas impediments in the place, including uh, barriers and razor wire. Uh, I'm not surprised by this because the Constitution pretty clearly commits control of the border to the federal government. And I know that, that was one of the original deal, that the borders and immigration are going to be controlled by the federal government. And so what Governor Abbott can do is continue to bus migrants that the federal government will not process and detain to blue states that are sanctuary cities that have declared themselves that. But uh, for the time being, they cannot interfere with the border patrol interference with their efforts to keep people out of Texas. Israel has proposed a two-month pause in the fighting in exchange for all of the hostages. I did not expect Hamas to take that. Hamas is, is desperate, and they are in the tunnels under Khan Yunus. Maybe they can get down to Rafah, but it's a, it's a matter of time, and the Israelis are not leaving. So that's a pretty good offer to Hamas. Two months... You turn over all of our hostages right now, we'll give you two months. That's basically two months to get away. And we'll track you down later or not. Uh, that's what that offer is. And Hamas should take it, but Hamas is made up of fanatics and terrorists, so I don't expect them to take it. U.S. and U.K. launched another set of strikes at the Houthis in Yemen, which is good. Doesn't mean that they've stopped. The Wall Street Journal headline is a major strike. There's like a major award in a Christmas story, U.S. and U.K. launch major strike. It's at the sixth time that the U.S. has targeted the group, but there has not yet been a statement from the president on what the plan is. What's the objective of this? What is our attitude towards it? The president hasn't said anything. A new concern on the Ukrainian battlefield, New York Times report, North Korea's latest missiles. North Korea is in the weapons business, and they're not shipping the older equipment, they're shipping brand new missiles, and while many of the North Korean artillery rounds are duds, some appear to have been manufactured decades ago, they are giving the Russians something to fire at Ukrainian forces who are rationing their own dwindling supply. European nations promised Ukraine a huge resupply, but for now have only been able to scrounge up 300,000 or so artillery shells. So it's, it's a proxy war with proxy shells, and they're running low. A story that concerns me greatly, Senator Tom Cotton will be along a little bit later today, is in the New York Times. Border deal near. Parole and money take center stage in Senate talks. Not a word about the wall. Not a word about the wall. This deal will die if it does not have the wall authorized and appropriated, funded, construction schedule delineated, map attached. Everything else is not going to get through the House. I don't know why they're bothering. They're debating parole, which is good. 
Tom Cotton can tell us later about why we need that to change. But it's not enough. I got a new Fox News column up this morning. Morning Glory, name the Veep now. Time is flying and there are dollars to be raised. All right, so that's on Tuesdays and Thursdays I write for Fox News. And this is about the very practical situation that we face. There are eight months until the election. The sooner a running mate is selected by either Donald Trump or Nikki Haley, and they can each select the same person or they could get together and say it's going to be this person or that person. My list of six is well known. I've published it before. And people can go look Tom Cotton or Mike Gallagher, Joni Ernst or Dan Sullivan. And I can't remember the other two. They'll come to me. Uh, They're all uh, Mike Pompeo, who I think is going to end up being secretary of defense is one of them. And um, I'll think of the last one here in a second. Another veteran. Oh, Robert O'Brien, the former national security advisor, who being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would be very, very invaluable in Arizona and Nevada. So I'd, I'd pick one of those six, or whomever you're going to pick. Some people like Elise Stefanik. I, I just don't see what a New Yorker does for you. I, I really don't see what a New Yorker does for you in any way, shape, or form. But whoever you pick, they got to have message discipline, and they got to commit to five events a day. And so I wrote a political director of a, of a group yesterday, uh, and the chairman of the group. I said, how much would you raise for the vice president if you knew who it was going to be, the nominee? And this individual said, I'll get back to you. I'll talk to our political director. He said, we can raise a million and a half probably in the first event, as soon as they're named. And then that event introduces the Veep to a bunch of people with whom they work throughout the, the summer and the fall to raise money. The Veep is a message and money machine. And the sooner you deploy them, the sooner they're out there doing it. And so I'd rather have them on the road for 240 days, eight months after March 5th, then for three months after it's over. So that's over at foxnews.com, and I put it on my X. Uh, there's another column out today, Selena Zito's, on East Palestine and how East Palestine, I shouldn't be able to say my own states, we played against them all the time. East Palestine being the place that Donald Trump turned his fortunes around. Trump's track to victory began when train derailed. And Selena, as usual, is right because she lives out in Redland not in Blue Land, and out in Redland, they know that Joe Biden never showed up in East Palestine, Ohio, with the truck derailment, and Pete Buttigieg showed up very, very late, but Donald Trump, Trump showed up early, and that's Trump country, and Selena's right. Uh, it's New Hampshire Day. Come right back. More coming up on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hugh Hewitt Live. I am so glad to be here on New Hampshire Primary Day. It is one of my three favorite days of the four-year cycle, Super Tuesday and Election Night in November being the other two. Brett Baer is anchoring coverage tonight for Fox News. Brett, my first New Hampshire primary was 1976. I was a Jerry Ford volunteer uh, as a sophomore in college. How long have you been doing New Hampshire primaries? Let's see. This is my fifth New Hampshire primary anchoring, um, and I think I've covered a couple more before that. So um, I've been around, been around here, uh, and it's it's really something. It is there is nothing like it in, in part because you people here really get into it. Yeah, uh, it's kind of quintessential who New Hampshire is, and uh, so they really value the role they play. You know, the first one goes all the way back to Eisenhower, the official first New Hampshire primary, 1952. And um, since that time, 
they've taken this role really seriously. And I must say, I went down a couple of times from Maine to New Hampshire this summer to do the small events for Christy and Haley and, and to talk to New Hampshire people. They take it very seriously, and they also don't take themselves seriously. This is not shoot-your-neighbor place. They, they take their politics seriously, but they do have fun, Brett. It's always been my experience that they have fun doing this. Yes, and, um, you know, they're into it. All the diners are packed, and the politicians know where to go. I was at the Red Hour Arrow Diner in Manchester the other day, and that place has just been around forever. That's the place where Bill Clinton made his comeback kid uh, moment, you know, after uh, all that, that transpired with Jennifer Flowers and everything else. There's always something to the New Hampshire primary, and they relish that. And when it's a two-person race, time, and when it yeah, gets to be two people. Now, let me read to you something that... Um, Brian Stuller put up, if you're looking for a sign that Haley will surprise to the upside, Alex Conant, who I know and you probably do as well, a veteran of GOP campaign, texted me that, quote, the press for her, Nikki, the last 72 hours has been better than any Republicans press in the last eight years. All three network evening news A blocks featured Nikki Haley indie voters excited about Nikki and said she needed them to vote. Haley Camp couldn't have written better scripts. You assess that as 100% true, 50% accurate. What's your assessment of that, Brett Baer? Well, I mean, I, I do agree that the media has been very good to her, but I don't agree that they always assess the power of the Trump base and the power of the Trump voter and really the power of the former president. I mean, he, he's going to have significant support here, and uh, some of it is just because people are fed up and they – you know, the people we talk to say you know, there are some, a big contingent that say it's time to move on. We clearly had that. We hear it. But there is also a big contingent that says Donald Trump's kind of really getting the shaft from the, the legal proceedings, thinks that uh, the reason he's not, uh, that he's being persecuted in their words is because he's the guy that could be the bull in the china shop and shake things up. And we, you know, when you think about it, Brett, everyone contacts the government one way or the other, if only to get their driver's license. And if anyone's had a bad experience with government, they're going to be for Trump. And so that's his base, because he is the unhappy the unhappy warrior, a contrast to, uh, to Hubert Humphrey. I am curious, though, about the Nikki Haley independent voter. Do you think Democrats will want to vote for someone who is a for, more, at least in the eyes of Experts, formidable challenger for Joe Biden. I think they want to vote for somebody besides Donald Trump. Now, remember, Democrats, you, if you're undeclared and lean Democrat, you can you could vote here. But if you were a Democrat, registered Democrat, you had to register in October. And, you know, there are about a few thousand that did that, that changed parties. Uh, listen, talking to the Sununu yesterday, he says he feels something different that he hasn't felt. He thinks this is going to be a record turnout today. She will need it to counter the Republican base. She will need to outperform on independence John McCain. Um, that's a significant number. It's about 43 percent. Yeah, that, that it's I went back through all the races and there's really no drawing a pattern because the demographics of New Hampshire have changed so much over the course of the last 40 years. Uh, Brett, when we're talking about campaign organizations, they're either very, very good or very, very bad. How do you assess these two in dealing with you as an anchor of the most watched uh, newscast every night? Well, they're very good. I think both of them are organized. Um, they're both, you know, highly professional on the press side. Um, the Trump folks, 
you know, our, I think he had a number of pull asides with various anchors uh, on the channel here. Uh, of course, yesterday or last night, he took to Truth Social to say that the channel was was all Nikki Haley all the time. But he's been on Fox <laughs> more uh, in the last, you know, three four days, and even before Iowa than than he's been in in years. Well, if he's not complaining, he's not breathing. So I, I'm, it's just the way the president is, and, and that's fine. That's just the way it is. Let me talk to you about what goes on after this. Yesterday, Nikki Haley told me she has plenty of money to go through uh, Super Tuesday and beyond into March. But that's exactly what Ron DeSantis told me last week. My show's become the Bermuda Triangle for, for candidates. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, so do you think she has the money? I do think she has the money. I just don't know if she has... You know, depending on how it finishes tonight, I really think she has to be within 10 points. I agree. I think it has to be within single digits to make a case that that the party, that there's a voter that really needs an alternative uh, to go on through Super Tuesday. She's going to lose exponentially in Nevada. She's not even in the caucus. She's in the primary. That doesn't get delegates. And then it's an uphill battle in her home state, which would be embarrassing if you lose that. But she does have the money. She does have the organization. She just needs the numbers in New Hampshire. Yeah, I, I agree with you. If she's within 10 points, she says to the country, I'm not going to do well in South Carolina because the former president is popular there. But when we get to Super Tuesday, we will have had time for the country to consider a one-on-one race and who they want to face Joe Biden. Uh, Brett, very quickly, I've got a column over at FoxNews.com this morning on I want the vice president named by the Republican early because 240 days of fundraising and cable is better than 80 days or 90 days of fundraising and cable. Any talk about this? Is anybody talking about rolling out their running mate early? Well, I asked uh, the former president about it. He said he might put it out in the next month or a couple months. I agree with you that if this this race wraps up early, that it is to his benefit uh, to have another person out and about fundraising and getting on media. I do think that the case for Nikki Haley, in part for the party, is to have a, a in case of emergency, break glass option, um, depending on what happens if some shoe drops that we don't even think about. Um, and they want, you know, and that's part of her pitch. Yeah, and in fact, Ted Cruz in 2016 stayed in until the end and then did not even endorse at the convention floor in Cleveland because he wanted to be the guy hanging around in the NFL. You're, if, you're the, if you're just hanging around yeah, at the yeah. end, you can win, right? Hanging around the hoop in the NBA. That's it. Yeah. Fred Bear, good to talk to you. We'll jumper. be watching tonight. I expect. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. David M. Drucker with The Dispatch is in New Hampshire. David, just tell us what your day is going to be like today because, boy, it's going to be a long one. Yeah, you know, usually, Hugh, Election Day, it's pretty empty and quiet in the middle of the day. And this is a traditional primary. So the campaigning will be light. There, there, there will be some retail stops and I may hit a couple of those, but those are really designed for the television cameras, maybe some sound for radio. There's no meaningful interaction with reporters because nobody really wants to shake things up at this point uh, for whatever reason they think they may finish in, in this way or that. So it, it, it's light during the day. It gets busy in the evening. And, of course, we're all trying to write something for the next day. And, and the dispatch, we have a, our dispatch politics newsletter on Wednesday. And so it'll be a flurry of activity um, at the election night gatherings. 
You know, David Drucker, I have been following this as closely as possible, and I have no idea because I've been told it depends on turnout what the margin will be. What is your feel? Because the crowds yesterday were enormous for both the former president and Ambassador Haley. Big, big crowds. So what's your feeling? Yeah, the, you know, the 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 problem with using crowds as a gauge is even the losing candidate gets a lot of votes. And so <laughs> I've learned over the years not not to make too much of crowds, although they can mean something. Look, there, there's been a lot of energy surrounding uh, Mickey Haley, at least since the middle of last week. Uh, the former president, plenty of energy surrounding him. I went to one of his surrogate events uh, where Elise Stefanik spoke at a, a local headquarters on a real cold Saturday morning. Uh, people jammed in there to listen to her. Um, so, you know, we, we've seen plenty of energy and positivity on both sides. I think, you know, one of the things I get down to is that individual polls may be wrong, but when they're all pointing in one direction, one direction, directionally, they kind of tell us what's going on. So I think, you know, the question here is, can Nikki Haley close in a particularly strong way such that maybe she pulls off an upset, but if not, she, she tightens the margin. That sort of thing did not happen in Iowa for either her or Ron DeSantis. Uh, you know, but we'll see what it looks like here. Now, I spoke with Ambassador Haley yesterday. She assured me she's going through March. Well, last week, Ron DeSantis assured me he was going through March. I'm not really sure I should believe anyone. What do you think, David? Well, they always assure you they're going uh, through March or April or whatever they need to assure you because uh, t- today is an election. And if she's telling everybody that if it doesn't go well, it's over, it actually discourages turnout, right? She wants everybody to believe that their vote matters. She needs people to believe that even if she loses, even if she loses by a lot, even if she loses by, you know, uh, kind of a lot or kind of a little, that it wasn't a wasted vote because you helped keep her in the game. Uh, so that's why Ron DeSantis said what he said, and that's why Nikki Haley is saying what she's saying. Now, I will say in, in Nikki Haley's case, she has enough money, I think, to get through South Carolina, and Nevada's in between. Um, and so she may be eyeing the collection of delegates and think that maybe over the next month she can regroup. Like if it doesn't go her way this evening, if it doesn't, that she could regroup and, and maybe still pull a rabbit out of a hat. She raised, she, you know, her campaign told me yesterday morning that one, after DeSantis dropped out, they raised a half a million and counting, uh, I guess, on the, along this premise that, okay, it's now a two-man race and people wanted to send extra support. So she's got money. It's something Ron DeSantis really didn't have. Um, but we will you know, we, see There are very rarely two-person races. Do. Reagan Bush was a two person race and Ford Reagan was a two person race. And you won't remember Ford Reagan. Ford won 50 percent to 49 percent for Reagan. It was it was a knockdown drag out. Every town in New Hampshire was a battlefield. And there's something uh, excellent about a two person race. I'm not sure we're going to get one here because the former president's lead seems to be pretty big. But there is something very good about it. They, they, They do trade blows. It becomes quite a drama. It really does, and it sharpens. Look, it's a two-person race. It's it's very. It, it makes it easy to sharpen the attacks. It makes it easy to contrast, uh, and, and I think for voters, it actually um, removes a lot of confusion and and just kind of for them crystallizes the choice of what they want. It also kind of tells us where the party is, right? Because. When you have multiple candidates, the race can be divided. Votes can be divided up all sorts of ways. When you have a two-person race, 
whoever benefits from the existing coalition is going to do better or has a chance to do better. And it's much harder for the insurgent, no matter which wing of the party they're coming from, to overcome the candidate who's in a better position from a coalition standpoint. Yeah, it's also this is very much the old Republican Party versus the new Republican Party. That's how I see it. Do you agree with me, Drucker? I totally agree with you. And in a weird thing here, Hugh, you know, Donald Trump is the establishment, but he represents the insurgent wing. He is is motivated an insurgent wing, but he is the establishment. And Nikki Haley is now in the position of an insurgent, but she comes from the traditional Reagan wing of the party that for years was the dominant partner in the coalition that included populists and conservatives. And so it's actually, from that perspective, very interesting to observe. There are lots to write about tomorrow. In Trump's shadow is David Drucker's excellent primer on the race that is unfolding in front of us. We'll talk with him after the election. David, have a great day today. Go back to bed if you can. And I'll talk to you again. Byron York of the Washington Examiner and Fox News joins me. Byron, my first New Hampshire primary was 1976 when I was working for Jerry Ford. I was on the wrong side of history, but I like Jerry Ford because he's a Midwestern Republican. And it's still fun. I assume you're up there, or are you doing this from D.C.? <laughs> oh, I am uh, speaking to you live from Concord, New Hampshire. <laughs> Tell us what your day ahead is like, Byron. Uh, well, I'm uh, going to go off and uh, be on Fox News at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern. Then uh, talk to some people, check and see, if, you know, what uh, people are showing up at the polls and that sort of thing. And then probably going to go to uh, Nikki Haley's event uh, tonight because I have been making um, Haley the focus of this reporting trip, trying to see what's going on here. You know, I pointed out to Drucker last hour, two-person races are really fun for reporters. Uh, Reagan Ford was fun. And Reagan Bush was fun and Bush McCain was fun. Not fun for the candidate, but it's fun for reporters. But they've got to go on a while. Do you think Nikki Haley has a hurdle that she has to clear tonight, a number in your head to get to Super Tuesday? Well, um, Nikki Haley has said uh, that she only has to, to do better than she did in Iowa, where she lost by 32 points. So she's kind of set the bar pretty low uh, for herself. Um, if you talk to people around her, they'll predict that she's going to finish close to um, to Donald Trump. And then you say, well, okay, well, what is close? And they say, well, you're going to decide that. The media is going to decide that. That's not for us. So, you know, they're they're leaving it very, very vague because what we've seen in the last several days, you know, there's been a tracking poll from the uh, the Boston Globe that's been coming out every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, and it shows Trump's lead just continuing to grow. And this morning, as a matter of fact, it hit uh, 60 with Haley at 38. So that's a 22-point lead. So um, if it's a blowout, I mean, I, I don't predict the future. It, it seems hard to figure out how she continues, but she definitely goes to South Carolina. and She's got a She's got a rally planned in uh, North, scheduled in North Charleston on Wednesday. Well, what she told me uh, yesterday is that she had carefully stewarded her money so that yeah. she would have enough money to get through March. And in fact, if you want the NFL strategy of hanging around a football game by two scores just in case something might happen, that's not a bad strategy. 
No, it's not. And but you you have to remember that the Sanders campaign said that they had enough money to go through March and the long run and they were all that kind of stuff. And you know that was when he was basically you know putting on his tie for his final state. Yeah, he told me that too. This is this show's become like the Bermuda Triangle for candidates in the last month, and so they I they know. come and then People they come go on your show and they disappear. They're never heard from again. Never heard from. So I'm worried about uh, Ambassador Haley. Uh, but I, nevertheless, I, I do think my own view: if she's within single digits, it's a big lift to her. If it's a double digit, it's interesting. The difference between nine and 10 is significant in my eyes only because of the way the headlines are written. Yeah. Double digit loss. You're double right. digit loss. Um, so it's, it's very, very hard. I mean, the real clear politics, actually, the story I'm just, my newsletter this morning, which I'm just finishing up, um, is about the uh, can, can poll averages be that wrong? I mean, we've all seen. Um, Individual polls that were were terrible. Remember that poll in Wisconsin? It was Washington Post ABC poll. Seventeen point lead for Joe Biden. He won by less than half a percent. Yeah, and so that point was that that, that poll was like more than sixteen points off. But now you have Trump in the Real Clear Politics average of polls leading by eighteen points. Uh, so actually, I asked for this piece. I asked Tom Devon, who's the co-founder of Real Clear Politics. I cite their poll average all the time. I said, "Can you remember polling averages ever being so wrong? Remember, Trump is leading in the average by 18 points." And uh, he all he could point to was actually New Hampshire in 2008 with the Democrats. The final Real Clear Politics average had Barack Obama up by 8.3 points. And Hillary Clinton won by 2.6. So that's almost an 11-point oh wrong miss. Well, I, I had it explained to me yesterday, Byron, that every model assumes a turnout. And if you got the turnout wrong, your model's blown. So if 350,000 right. people show up, Nikki Haley is feeling very good. And if 200,000 people show here, up. Yeah. But remember here, that, that worst case you can think of was an 11-point miss. And Trump is now leading by 18. So... We'll see. I mean, if there, if the miss is so big that Trump wins by five or six or something, I, I have to agree with you. I think the whole story will be, you know, Haley scares Trump closer than, than expected, that sort of thing. So the uh, the Patrick, 20, Patrick Buchanan in 1992 against H.W. He only got 38 percent of the vote, but that was a stunner. Uh, Byron, I have a, a piece over at Fox News this morning, a very practical piece, uh, not picking sides between Trump or Haley, but saying, Whichever one of you is the nominee, pick a Veep soon and get them out there raising money because hard dollars matter. Do you think they'll do that? Um, it's entirely possible with Trump. Uh, with with Haley, I mean, Haley is just so focused on winning uh, the race right now. I mean, if you walk up to Haley and say, well, who are going to be your vice presidential choices? Um, you know, she would she would get back on message about winning this race. So with Trump, we've seen this kind of we've already had kind of a tryout period. Um, and there are some people like uh, Elise Stefanik and Christy Nome who clearly want it bad. Uh, you know, Tim Scott, he's uh, Trump has been bringing him on stage, brought him on stage again last night. Uh, so I think it's possible with Trump, probably not possible at all with Haley. Yeah, I'm just a very practical person because hard dollars are better than soft dollars because they're controlled by the candidate and they buy 
the television time at the lowest rate on the card and the radio time at the lowest rate on the card. I don't know how the Internet advertising works. And hard dollars matter. And if you've got a guy for or a gal for 240 days, it's better than having them for 90 days. They can raise a lot more money in 240 days. Uh, Byron, uh, will you be on tonight with Brett on Fox News providing analysis as well? I will not be there, but I plan to be uh, right after with Laura Ingram. Okay, okay. we'll be watching Laura Ingram now. now. In terms of the people that showed up yesterday, did you did you go to campaign events yesterday for Trump and Haley? Uh, I went to uh, Haley's final event in uh, Salem uh, last and night. Uh, I saw cool. pictures. It looked like a blowout. And again, pictures are pictures. They don't tell you anything. Was it jammed? Yeah, it was. It was at a hotel uh, in Salem. This big new development. There were about five hundred people uh, in the room, which was jammed. And then uh, there was actually an overflow room uh, as well. So it was very um, well attended. Now, I have to tell you, the one thing I've kind of been wrestling with um, going to Haley's events is that there's, uh, you know, you're listening, trying to gauge the enthusiasm in the crowd. And there seems to be just a certain, there's a lot of time there's kind of a tepid reaction to the point she makes. She gives her stump speech, you know, almost word for word all the time. Um, and you know how a crowd, you've got 500 people in a room, you know how a crowd, if they really want to be loud, they could be really, really loud. Oh, that yeah. never happened. That never yeah. happened. Um, and so there always seems to be a certain lack of something at the at the Haley events that I've gone to. There was one in Derry on uh, Sunday, and it was in a school, and it was in the library, and some people were saying, I was thinking it would be in the gymnasium, in other words, a bigger room. But here again, there was that just certain sort of lack. And and I think back to Iowa, where the final Des Moines Register poll comes out, and Haley has moved into second place at 20 points. But the pollster, Ann Seltzer, uh, warns everybody that... Even though she's at 20, there's a real lack of enthusiasm among her supporters, so much that so that uh, Seltzer called it almost jaw-dropping. Um, so I wonder if, if there still is here a certain lack of enthusiasm, in part because Haley has, has, has uh, kind of consolidated the anti-Trump vote, and that includes a number of people who will probably vote for a Democrat, but right now, Haley is their best effort to try to stop Trump. And, you know, I, I think that's a very good analysis. And only in New Hampshire does that dynamic play out early in the race. There are some other open primaries down the road, but that's what's always marked the volatility of the New Hampshire race. Uh, I'll be seeing Rove later today. We're doing an event. And I'm going to go back over this with him. How soon do you think they'll call it, Byron? Could be fairly early. I wouldn't expect it to be a super late night. Yeah, neither do I. Byron York on X. want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I bet, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by... Del Taco or Taco no, Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is a, and it's healthy, it's wise, it's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's 864 
644-1900. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Senator Tom Cotton joins us. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back. Good morning, Hugh. It's good to be on with you. I have a dilemma, which I'm hoping you can help me with. I'm, of course, rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs over the, the Ravens. But the Lions are playing the 49ers. And this is a dilemma because we, we, we know the Lions have never been to the Super Bowl. And the only other original NFL team that hasn't been to the Super Bowl is the Browns. And I don't want them to get there before the Browns. But the 49ers are the 40. What are you doing on that one, Senator Cotton? <laughs> I would imagine that most of the middle of the country will be rooting for the Lions. That's where my son said they want to root for. I'll be pulling for the Lions as well. Nothing against the 49ers. All right. So are you in uh, New Hampshire campaigning for the former president, or are you working on the border bill? We are, uh, we are in session, so we're in Washington voting. It, uh, it would appear, judging by... The polls and the momentum on the ground, the president doesn't need any help campaigning in New Hampshire. That He's got, got all the strength he needs. I think he's going to have a, a big resounding victory tonight, and that will make him the presumptive nominee. And I hope if, uh, if that happens tonight, then we can all rally around uh, President Trump and focus our fire where it deserves to be, which is on Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Well, I would like to do that, but I am afraid that the Republicans are about to drive over a cliff that they've driven over three times in the course of my career in the, on this show, where they've signed on in the Senate to an immigration compromise, which dead on arrival in the House. And I think they're going to do it again. What do you know? Well, Hugh, uh, the negotiations are ongoing, so I won't pass judgment on any bill until we actually have the text of it and evaluate uh, what effect it will have. I think the point you're making, Hugh, though, is well taken. We don't want a deal for a deal's sake. Uh, We don't want a deal that's not going to work. We want a deal that will work, that will actually stop the flow of thousands of migrants a day every single day across our southern border. And if the Democrats refuse to uh, grant those reforms because they're more invested ideologically in open borders, then we'll just have to take this issue to the voters in November. Well, that's that's what I agree with, because eight million people have been, quote, encountered in the Biden years in three years. That does not count Gataways. We had one hundred and sixty five people on the terror watch list. And I want a wall. And I know all the reasons against the wall. It doesn't work. It doesn't go far enough. They can build tunnels. They can bring ladders. But let's talk about the wall for a second, Senator. Does it ever come up in the conference that it is the visible symbol that the base is demanding? Well, you, you've used an apt phrase for many years, going back at least to that terrible 2007 deal that fortunately died. Yep. That the wall is a is a visible expression of an invisible commitment or uh, or will. Yep. And I think that's a very important point. And, and you're right that a wall is a sufficient or a necessary but not sufficient uh, step in controlling our border. But it is necessary, um, especially in high traffic areas that don't have own natural barriers or difficulties. Um, yes, you have to supplement it with Border Patrol officers to observe it, to technology uh, and coordination. But a wall is very simply something that just sits there and works. Human beings have built walls around their 
civilizations since the dawn of civilization, since the dawn of recorded time, because walls or fences or barriers or whatever you want to call it works. And if it didn't work, then Joe Biden would take down the fence around the White House. A wall yeah. works, and a wall is part of the solution at the border. The, the Israelis are not going to not rebuild their fence. They're going to build two of them. Uh, because the one on ten seven proved inadequate. The Finns are building a wall on their border with Russia. Uh, they're, they're just as... And Hungary is building a wall to stop migration into their country. Yep. I don't understand why people don't understand. 75% is better than 0%. Well, yeah, I mean, Hugh, again, it's just illogical. I mean, to say that, you know, a wall doesn't work is like saying, you know, fire doesn't work. Like, of course a wall works. Again, it, it's not a 100% solution. It has to be supplemented. You know, in the Army, we used to uh, say that, uh, you know, an obstacle without observation is not an obstacle. That's because uh, bad guys with enough time can breach any obstacle. But you had to have the obstacle. Like, we didn't just sit there and have only observation posts. We built walls and fences and barriers around our posts and then supplemented it with soldiers and guard posts, the analog of a Border Patrol agent, or with technology so people can't climb over it or tunnel underneath it. But a wall is the simplest solution in many parts of the border. All right, now I want to turn to Israel. Uh, the deadliest day in the war for Israel since 10-7 occurred yesterday when 24 IDF troops died, 21 in a building collapse, three officers in, in heavy fighting around Khan Yunus. It occurred on the same day that the Biden administration is using the Wall Street Journal to say that, you know, we don't have to destroy Hamas. I had Ambassador Haley on yesterday. She thought that was a, quote, disgusting comment by the Biden administration. Do you sense Team Biden is backing away from Israel now? Oh, there's no question about that, Hugh. And it's not just new in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. I mean, for a couple months now, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats have been ready to throw in the towel um, in the fight against Hamas. And it's important to note why they want to do this, not because of some grand strategic calculation, Hugh. It's because Joe Biden now views Israel and this war as a political liability that is costing him political support among the far-left, anti-Semitic wing of the Democratic Party, some of whose votes are necessary for him to win re-election in November in places like Michigan and maybe Ohio and Pennsylvania. So they're making a political calculation about an existential threat that Israel faces. Uh, it is appalling. Uh, and, and I hope that Israel ignores these people, and I hope our, our party campaigns on supporting Israel. Do you think that will have traction in the fall? If we are 100% with Israel and we communicate that, do you think that moves at least a small percentage of voters? Oh, I think there's no question, Hugh, uh, that voters across the country um, are going to be moved uh, against what they see as the growing tide of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden's apparent unwillingness to stand up and, and refute those wings of his party, but rather to cave to them and start putting pressure on, on Israel to find some kind of accommodation, uh, again, with a bloodthirsty terrorist group that burned children alive and gang-raped women before brutally uh, mutilating and killing them. Um, Israel can, can not accept this state of affairs anymore. The Republican Party and Donald Trump recognize that and will be forced square behind Israel Joe Biden and the Democratic Party is looking to find some kind of accommodation with Hamas. That's not what the American people want. Now, I want to turn for a moment to something that's parochial. You and I are Harvard guys. Uh, I think you spent seven years there. Did you do three years undergrad or four years undergrad? I did three years undergrad to you and then law school. So I was able to get away with six. You were able to get away with six. and I got four. And I used to like the place. But now 
they've come up with a new committee and they got it wrong again. And here's my first just objective question. You're a senior senator in the Republican Party. You're on judiciary and you're on um, uh, defense and you're on intel. Has anyone from Harvard called you as an alum of both the law school and the college to ask you what you think about the dilemma that they face to fix their anti-Semitism problem? <laughs> Hardly, Hugh. I think my politics are no longer in fashion at Harvard. They were never in fashion, Hugh, probably like you, uh, you know, many, 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 many decades, <laughs> maybe in the 19th century, um, knew you were in a minority. You know, I mean, as a conservative, we knew we were minorities uh, in college. But, you know, I, I never once felt like a beleaguered or oppressed minority um, or even an unwelcome one. I don't think that's the case today when I visit with college students who come to work for me or intern for me. I think in many college campuses across the country, conservatives now feel beleaguered and oppressed and unwelcome. And I think that's doubly true at Ivy League schools like Harvard. I mean, you had, a, I thought, an eye-opening uh, experience. I think it was last summer when you went back for your Oh, yeah. Uh, and oh, boy. They had, you know, some, some like, Politburo junior commissar from the alumni office telling you what you could and could not say uh, on campus. Yes, uh, I was so warned. I think the rot, the rot has set in pretty deeply at Harvard. You know, they announced this anti-Semitism task force, yet the, one of the leaders of it uh, is basically an anti-Zionist. You know, it's condemned the entire modern project of Israel. Um, you know, you I, I, but here's about. what I don't understand, Senator. You and Senator Cruz are very high-profile Harvard grads and uh, 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 smart people who could contribute to the conversation, and they haven't called. It's it's not that they're too big to fail. It's that they cannot not fail because they never ask anyone outside of their blue bubble what they're doing wrong. Well, again, I think it's a, it's a sign of, again, how deep black plotting gay become president and they think they're the constituencies to which they answer want to hear them equivocate about anti-Semitism. You know, there's constituencies being, you know, not just alumni or financial backers of the university, but their undergraduate students, their graduate students, their faculty members, their administrators, how divorced their views of those constituencies are from normal Americans' views. And last question, Senator. Penny Pritzker, the former Secretary of Commerce, is the chairman of the Harvard Corporation. She is responsible for the disastrous selection of Claudine Gay, and she's running the next one. Her brother is the governor of Illinois. She's an Obama appointee. How much do you think what's going on at Harvard represents the President Obama wing of the Democratic Party sort of institutionalizing itself in elite institutions? I think there's some of that, Hugh. I mean, I I wouldn't say it's necessarily like Barack Obama and his personal aides pulling the strings behind the scenes, in part because they don't have to, Hugh. Because that anti-American ideological worldview is so deeply embedded in America's universities and media institutions, sometimes even corporate America, that they don't have to call the shots. They're confident that that ideology is going to prevail, even if they take a more passive stance on this or that controversy of the day. Uh, So last question, Senator, you're on judiciary. I saw a nominee come through who is so far to the left I can't believe it. Uh, I don't remember the name. The name was unusual. Are they getting more radical in their judicial nominees? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting to watch at this stage of the Biden uh, presidency in, in year four. It is a very, very sharp dichotomy between the kinds of nominees we're getting. 
in some cases, they're finally getting down to states with two Republican senators. So the nominees are actually not that bad. Some I can even support, uh, especially at the district court level from Republican states. On the other hand, in states with two Democratic senators or uh, with open court of appeals seats, if they haven't been nominated and confirmed by this point, they really are the most extreme of all the extremists. So, yeah, we're seeing at the end of last year and now at the beginning of this year, some nominees that are just truly beyond the pale. It's hard for me to believe that some of these nominees will even come up for a vote. You know, I don't, I don't think people like Bob Casey and Sherrod Brown will vote no on a Biden judicial nominee. They haven't yet. But, boy, they're probably working overtime behind the scenes, pleading with Chuck Schumer to protect them from those votes. Yeah, I'm just hoping they put those on the agenda and we get full Senate votes on, on some of these people because, boy, they are off the charts. Senator Tom Cotton, thank you, Senator. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.